0: Of course, in the Western world, there's always that saying, like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But really, like, breakfast is pretty substantial and we kind of treat it like lunch. <laughs> um.
1: I'm Hetty McKinnon and welcome back to The House Specials. You just heard from today's guest, Daisy Orlana, owner of the New York-based Indonesian food pop-up, Sayang. Daisy and I have a lot in common, the most notable being that we both enjoy having an intimate meal with people we don't know. When I was running my salad delivery business, Arthur Street Kitchen, I would ride around my old neighbourhood of Surrey Hills in Sydney, Australia, with salads on the back of my bike. In doing this, the exchange of the salad box came to mean so much more to me. There is something deeply intoxicating about connecting with strangers through food, and that sense of instant community that is forged through a meal. Meanwhile, through her pop-up, Syang, Daisy provides a sense of community for fellow Indonesian expats while introducing newcomers to the food of her distant homeland. When you're an immigrant, feeling isolated or displaced is not unfamiliar, so eating with strangers offers instant connection. For Daisy, who moved to New York City over a decade ago to study architecture, it was cooking Indonesian food and sharing it with others which finally made New York feel like home. On today's episode, we chat with Daisy about the food of her childhood in Jakarta. And how she is learning to adapt these recipes to ingredients that are more accessible to her now, and how cooking Indonesian food in New York has led her back home. I wanted to get, like, build a bit of a picture about what your life was back in Indonesia. Can you tell us? What was home life like? Did you have siblings? Um, where did you live? Or just build us a little picture about what that life was like.
0: Yeah, I lived in South Jakarta with my family. My siblings are a lot older than me, so I'm trying to think of a time when we were all in the same house together when I lived there. But there's always like either my brother was around or my sister was around and my dad as well, and it was. Yeah, I mean, Jakarta is a very active and busy city and very, very food centric. And so, growing up, I'd say my family always um, planned our days around food. You know, we'd be having dinner one night and already planning our meals the following day. Like, that was always the big occasion. It was never. I wouldn't say that we did a lot of activities as a family, really, but it was always around eating and like
1: trying new things. And did your parents cook a lot?
0: No, here and there, not really. We had actually like also someone
1: who would help cook with for us at home, but
0: everyone cooks a little bit, but not every day, I think, because everyone was working
1: so much as well. And you, when did you move to the United States? I moved here in... 2009. I came here
0: for architecture school originally. And then I kind of, I mean, why I started saying this because I didn't know any Indonesian communities here and I couldn't find the food. Um, so it came based on a lot of experimentation and watching YouTube videos because I found it was very difficult to find recipes at the time. I think a lot of the way that like i learned how to cook and i know my family members learned how to cook it's not really by like looking at recipes you just like watch or you like try your hand at it and so yeah it was kind of just a, a long-term trial and error of practicing in an mm-hmm. cooking
1: and i think when you're away from home the food because i've lived away from home like twice now and being away from your family i think mm-hmm. food is an easy way of recreating those moments that you had with when your family were around you. And it really resonates with me what you said about, you know, these oral traditions in many cultures and particularly Asian cultures. Um, And then we, the next generation, have to learn these recipes via actual recipes because Mm -hmm. that is the world that we grew up in. So that's something I'm always thinking about. Um, from yeah, the,
0: yeah. I've been um trying to read a lot about the history of the food in Indonesia, and it's interesting to find that even like historically, it's very difficult to find ancient records of recipes. And the reason why Indonesia is an archipelago and Java is the main island that the capital city is on, the reason why we know so much more about Javanese food is because that was one of the few in the country that's. Been recorded because of a lot of Hindu and Buddhist influence that, like, did record a lot of things. Then we started to record what people ate. But for the other islands, it's been very difficult to find out, like, how people ate back then or, you know, what recipes are still being consumed mm. today.
1: And I think that leads us to, like, a really interesting question I wanted to ask you Indonesian food, which is probably one of the lesser known of the Asian foods in the Western world, not in (laughs) Indonesia, but I feel like particularly in the US, it's not particularly well known. And it kind of leads me to this question of like, where do you think Indonesian food is in America? Like in terms of cookbooks, I know of a few Indonesian cookbooks that are not really written by Indonesian people. I just like to get your thoughts on, on all of that.
0: Yeah, it is a little difficult. I was you know, I was home maybe 2 years ago, try to go back every year and a half or two to see my family and it's very difficult to find Indonesian cookbooks written by Indonesians, weirdly even there. I flew I think out of the Bali airport and even the cookbooks there were often written by foreigners, you know. And I'm not quite sure why that is exactly. And yeah, there's always a bit of disconnect. I feel like when the point of view comes from quote unquote, like an outsider, um, in some ways. But yeah, I think I would love to see more cookbooks written by Indonesians. Like there's some amazing chefs in Jakarta actually that are trying to maintain older methods of fermenting and like, you know, making tempeh and really trying to keep recipes from various islands. Um, and showcasing those. So I'd really love to see like one coming, you know, from some of those people, because I think and I hope at least that they would give more context into the history of the foods and the ingredients. You know, because when you learn about the country, you realize that, you know we're influenced by like Indian cooking and Chinese cooking. When those traders came in. The reason why we fry things is because uh, of Chinese settlers that came. Uh, the reason why we started cooking with clay pots and heat is because, you know, settlers is coming in from India and bringing in certain spices. So it's, I would love to see like more of that context because right now, like it's even hard for me to find out and learn like the origins, you know, of our cuisine.
1: Yeah, we, you have to really dig. It's It's really the story behind the meals. It's not really even about the recipe. It's about why that recipe exists or what significance that recipe holds for the person eating it. Like it doesn't have to be like the most original, you know, gastronomic um, Mm -hmm. recipe. It's more just about the significance of that dish and the nostalgia behind that dish. So, Yeah. yeah. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by California Olive Ranch. Discovery starts in the bottle. Extra virgin olive oil for every dish, every meal, and every cuisine. I love savoury. I even love savoury desserts. One of my go-to desserts when I'm short on time or ingredients is olive oil over ice cream. Simply drizzle olive oil over vanilla ice cream and finish with a sprinkle of sea salt. Sweet and a little salty and a lot divine. Okay, now back to our conversation. So imagine um, someone... Well, I actually have never been to your pop-up. I wanted to go and then, um, you know, the, the life, the world changed. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. But
1: um, can you kind of build us a picture of what your pop-ups looked like and, you know, the, the sounds, the music, the the atmosphere? Can you kind of describe yeah. one of them to us?
0: Um. So what the pop-ups look like, I would
1: say that
0: there's two different kinds that we've explored in the last two years. And then one would be I would say, not a more serious, but like a more sit down dinner where you taste several dishes and you eat them family style, because that's such a big part of our culture is eating communally and eating with your hands. So I would say that that's one version of it. And I would say the first version. But the other part that I've really enjoyed is like, the more casual style of cooking. And we try to just serve only a handful of dishes, and then people just buy them a la carte. and. You know, not saying that like all Indonesian food is street food or casual, but that's a style of eating that I personally love. Um, and music has been such a big part of it. We always play really, really fun Indonesian disco, funk, or jazz. It'll also make you make it easier for you to find it if you're trying to find uh, <laughs> the pop up, hopefully. Um, and I think I would say because my background is as a designer. I always try to curate the experience in the spaces in some way, whether it's being really careful about the story I tell with like the tablescape and the menu so that people have some context as to what they're eating, or sometimes we actually build stuff. So for one of the pop-ups, the breakfast pop-up, we actually built standing height tables. So it's a little bit more uh, similar to the experience you would have when you're eating in Indonesia, just with plastic stools around. But... Yeah, we just try to keep it really vibrant. I think when people try to represent the aesthetic of Indonesia, sometimes I find that it's too predictable. It's the way that people try to like commodify Bali. You know, see the batik and like the rattan and the wicker. And it's always been really important to me to give something that's a little bit unexpected.
1: That sounds so cool. I wish I could have come. (laughs) I actually love that idea. Having been to, I've been to Bali a few times and. What You're right. I mean, that's the connotations of Indonesia. So I would like, actually, it'd be fascinating to see the other side of yeah. Indonesia.
0: One of the most memorable pop-ups is definitely our breakfast pop-up. Of course, in the Western world, there's always that saying, like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But really, like, breakfast is pretty substantial, and we kind of treat it like lunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, Uh, You know, it's not just like a light fair all the time. So I think that was a really fun theme to explore is like breakfast in Indonesia, even though we didn't, you know, share a ton of dishes, but it's kind of giving light to how we eat breakfast and it isn't like cereal and it's not always light. (laughs) It's kind of supposed to be like the filling way to start your day.
1: Well, maybe we should, I thought it'd be fun if we could go through that breakfast menu. You know, if you could tell us a little bit about each of the dishes that you sold at that particular pop-up. Yeah,
0: sure. I would say with the dishes at the pop-up, I wanted to feature my favorite one. It's bubur ayam, a rice porridge and a turmeric chicken broth with as little or as many toppings uh, you like. And I wouldn't say like a porridge is super Indonesian. I think the root of it is actually from Chinese culture, but it's eaten everywhere. But the one I made specifically is called bubur ayam Batawi, And betawit refers to Jakartans, the people of Jakarta. And this is... I think kind of like the most nourishing way to start your day because it's like a warm breakfast. The broth, I think, is the key part. It just adds a different layer. I've, I haven't i have experienced like a ton of porridges, but sometimes I feel like the porridges are mostly porridge and this version has more broth. And it comes with a lot of topping options. One of the main ones is probably tapioca crackers. I would say, as a culture, we love our crunchy, <laughs> our crunchy elements to a dish. And these tapioca crackers we call krupuk, and we also have fried shallots on it, fried soy nuts, scallions, sometimes actually chakwe, um, uh, which is like a Chinese fried dough. And then if you like it spicy, which a lot of people do, you'll add slices of little Thai bread chilies and ketchup manis, which is a sweet soy sauce. I
1: love ketchup manis.
0: Yeah, (laughs) me too. I love it on everything. Um, It really hits the spot, even just with like a rice and egg. (laughs) And then what else did we make? Um, We made another porridge. So we wanted to do like a cold and a warm porridge. That was really important. And the other one was a black rice porridge. And this is different to wild rice. I would say it's more like black sticky rice or black sweet rice. And then you kind of serve that with coconut milk cooked with pandan leaves and a bit of palm sugar. What's that dish called? Uh, which just means black rice porridge. <laughs> uh, it's the trans- direct translation. Um, and What else did we make? We made a dessert, a baked good. It was a pandan butter mochi. And I wouldn't say that butter mochi is Indonesian at all, but the pandan part is. And we wanted to just kind of play around with that. And then we also served bajigur, which is a sweetened coffee drink. That drink comes out of Sundanese culture in West Java. We also, like my personal favorite. We um, serve uh, jamu, specifically jamu kunit asam, which is a turmeric ginger tonic or, yeah, like a tonic of some sort. And this is always a funny one to me because I grew up drinking this every day. It's just a part of our tradition and ritual. I mean, to drink jamu, which is a general word for tonic, but... I think for most Indonesian families, like a daily ritual, more so than the big breakfast is jamu is like such a big part of personal and community wellness, I would say. So again, speaking of like wellness being commodified, it's very funny to see this sometimes in like health stores. And it's like, you know, $12 for like a really small jar because it's it's just something so simple that I grew up with and I didn't really think about it until now you see it commodified like that
1: um so and is it called jamu when when in the stores have you seen it ever sold it under that name or have they kind of you know whitewashed the name and called it yeah turmeric tonic or something
0: exactly or something elixir or uh a reason why this is also like such an important of the culture is uh this is a funny one i never know how to explain it to non-indonesians there is like. self-perceived illness called uh, masuk angin which literally means um, enter wind and it's not really when you're sick it's like before you get sick and you're slightly under the weather and you feel off like people believe you get masuk angin if you swim and you sleep with wet hair or if you know uh, some foods are believed to be like heatier or colder than others. I think like other Asians have this as well. Like it's like your energy balance is um, a little bit, you know, offline. So this is another reason like Indonesians are always oh, like, I need to have jamu, you know, I'm like, I have masuk angin. It's like the cure is always jamu and then cupping. Um, and I don't know what you call it in English, but you get some sort of rub, like Vicks or, you know, Tiger Balm or something, and then you use a coin to like, scratch your back to, like, push the air out. <laughs> I don't know how to explain this air.
1: Well, first English. of all, traditional Indonesian elixirs and her- herbal remedies are very trendy. That's one thing yeah. I've picked up. But I yeah. I, uh, I relate to all of that, <laughs> because yeah. in, in Chinese culture, you know, my you you just kind of like like a little cough and my mum runs to the kitchen and starts making like what we call tong which is soup because that's that's kind of our jamu you know we had soup soup every single night before dinner and we would all sit there at the table and go not tong again because (gasps) you know you drink this thing and you don't want to eat your dinner and we were like, yeah. I don't want to drink this and fill up on this boring soup when I could be eating like proper food. So yeah, yeah tong is our jamu. So it's it's pretty funny. And even now when I say if one of my kids are sick, my mum will go, I'll oh, go make that, the, you know, the carrot soup with the potatoes. And, this, and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But yeah. <laughs> I wish that was my instinct to do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think those were all the things we made at the... pop. It wasn't like typically, I would say, because with each pop-up, we try to do a different theme and explore food from that region. I feel like people always are mostly familiar with like more basic dishes or dishes that are popularized in Bali. So it was really important to share like, yes, yeah, some places you know, we eat this and try to remove a little bit of like the judgment from having not tried certain dishes. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say like a padang pop up we did. Padang is where my dad's from in Sumatra. I would say that's more adventurous. Mm -hmm. We serve beef tongue, oxtail, you know, because that's how people eat there. It's just a more mountainous part of the land. And it's really important to just share different things that I wouldn't say I'm an expert on. But like, I've tried making these dishes a handful of times to try to share it with other people.
1: Yeah. And it's a good reminder of how diets and cuisines were so reliant upon, or so dependent upon, you know, the environment and yeah. the, the temperatures and how people lived was yeah. very much influenced by that. I think we forget mm-hmm. about that when we live in the city.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, that's always a struggle that I juggle with when sharing the food, especially with people who haven't tried the food before, you know, haven't been exposed to it. It's like, how authentic do you make it? Because inherently, I don't have access to the same ingredients I do back home. uh, So it's like, you're gonna share the food a little bit different, you know, like, it'll, I would say more difficult for me to like, share a cow skin cracker you know Like it's (laughs) it's just a little bit harder (laughs) for me to do that here but and in Indonesia you can find that in any market you know close to your house yeah yeah. I
1: I think it's still important to do because even though the the recipes and the food might taste a little bit different because the ingredients are different it's it's more the experience of of eating that food um, that -hmm. is still really important I think it's always fine for recipes to kind of evolve too because I mean, that's the way kind of immigrant food has always been, right? You know, like even mm-hmm. my mum in Australia, she would have cooked things very differently to how her elders would have cooked it because it naturally evolves because you can't, you're in a different environment. For sure. And so what's the future of saying Like what, where do you, after COVID, where do you see the pop-ups going?
0: Yeah, I would say for the future, the dream really is to like take a small group of people and go to the farmer's market or the grocery store and be like, you can buy this, this, and this, and you can use this as alternatives and then kind of cook it intimately together after. I would love to do more different kinds of pop-ups. I would love to do more collaborations with other Indonesians, whether it's like with music or art and kind of share for culture in more ways than just food. That's really important to me to just familiarise people with certain aspects of the culture.
1: I really miss that sense of community that is forged through sharing a meal with friends or even strangers and learning about each other by sitting around the table together. For me, as someone who has moved countries as an adult, just like Daisy, food is a tether to my family back in Sydney and to my Chinese heritage. So I really love what Daisy is doing with Sayang, and look forward to attending one of her pop-ups when it's safe to do so again. This episode was produced and edited by Shirley Kai. Our theme song is Moonlight Melody by Scout McKinnon with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you heard today, check out issue six of Peddler Journal, The Immigrant Issue. Season two of the house specials is an audio companion to this issue. Throughout this season, you'll hear from home cooks, writers, artists, and entrepreneurs. Every guest has a unique immigration story, and we will explore how the foods they cook, eat, and share with others keeps them connected to their respective homelands and to their cultural roots. You can find us at peddlerjournal.com and on Instagram at peddlerjournal. We are now taking a break for the holidays, and we will be back in the new year with the next episode. We bring your conversation with not one, but three passionate and talented women in the food biz. Chitra Agarol of Brooklyn Deli, Lee Talarazzi of New York Shook, and Sana Javeri-Kadri of Diaspora Co. See you then. This episode is brought to you by California Olive Ranch. Discovery starts in the bottle. Extra virgin olive oil for every dish, every meal, and every cuisine. And here's a quick recipe for today. Got extra virgin olive oil on hand? Well, you can whip up a jar of homemade mayonnaise in just a few minutes. In a food processor or blender, or whatever you've got, add an egg yolk, a couple teaspoons of Dijon mustard, a tablespoon of lemon juice, half a teaspoon of salt, and a good grind of black pepper. Then, turn the machine on and slowly trickle in the olive oil until all the olive oil has been added and emulsified. Takes about three minutes. Add more salt, pepper, or lemon juice to taste. It should keep in an airtight container in the fridge for about a week.